you will open your Bibles, please, to Proverbs chapter 1. Over the last several weeks, we have been concerning ourselves with a study of Proverbs chapter 1, specifically looking at verses 8 to 19. And what we have found there has been so very provocative to us because it has been challenging us how to interact with unbelievers. And the title of these series of messages have been Bad Company Corrupts Good Morals or Don't Hang with the Wrong Crowd. And we have been occupying ourselves with the concept of how is it that we are supposed to be Christians who are attempting to be salt and light and yet at the same time not being so heavily influenced by the culture around us. As you may remember, I have outlined verses 8 to 19 in the following way. First of all, we looked at verses 8 and 9 under the title, Where Your Parents Godly counsel continually. Wearing your parents' godly counsel continually. There in verse 8, the Bible says, Hear my son, Solomon speaking to his son, hear your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. In other words, Solomon is teaching, commanding, exhorting with all of his might that his son would listen to him, would follow his instruction, and would not forsake his mother's teaching. And that indeed these teachings, these principles are so important, so crucial, that they are like a graceful wreath to one's head. Uh, they're like a beautiful ornament or a necklace about one's neck. It's as though you could wear them and wear them so very well. Because to take these principles into your heart and to live them out would do you well for the rest of your days. Because they're not really only Solomon's words, they're God's words. God is speaking through Solomon. Through the inspired text, we have what God wants every one of us to do. Not just Solomon and his son, but all of us. We're to wear our parents' godly counsel continually. As though we're wearing this beautiful wreath on our head, a, a beautiful hat, a, a lovely piece of hat wear that we could, could so very easily show everyone else that we are indeed obedient to the ones who are over us. And then secondly, from verses 10 to 14, we saw a very clear second outline point, a principle for us to adhere to, and that is this. We are to withstand the enticement of sinners' words. Notice in verses 10 to 14, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. 
Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We will all find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. There in verses 10 to 14, we find through Solomon's wise instruction that there are going to be people in this world who are going to entice us to sin primarily, at least initially, by their words. Notice he says in verse 11, if they say, people are going to speak to us. They're going to entice us with their words. They're going to try to allure us away into their sin. And we are supposed to do everything we can not to listen to those kinds of people. And you remember as we talked about this, we said that there are people who are all about giving their words of wisdom, but in the end, their words of wisdom aren't really wisdom at all. It's really Satan's words, not to be listened to, not to be followed. It may initially appear as though they are good things to be involved with, good things for our eyes and ears to see and hear, but no. Some people will say things to us, and when they say, come with us, let us do this or that, and it may not be in your own heart and in my heart and in application, a lying in wait for someone to kill them, like it says here. It may not be to ambush the innocent without cause, for so many of us would say, I've never done such a thing, nor would I ever consider such a thing. But really, it could be anything. It could be anything that these sinners entice us with. It could be, let us go here or there. Or let us do this or that. Let us think these things. And any number of things could come to our minds. It may have been that even some of us have been enticed already. And we've seen the damage that it has done to our souls and this is a clear word from verses 10 to 14 about what we're supposed to do. And Solomon says, withstand, withstand these words, these enticing words. And we looked at that in great detail. And then thirdly, from verses 15 to 19, we're told this. We're told to walk away from the sinner's world. To wear our parents' godly counsel continually, to withstand the enticement of sinners' world, uh, words, and to walk away ultimately from the sinners' world itself. Notice verse 15. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Now, as soon as we began to embark upon this third principle, this very crucial principle, principle of walking away from the sinner's world, 
we were immediately struck with a problem, a question, a challenge, a difficulty. And that is, how is it that Christians, believing people, regenerate individuals, or churches for that matter, how can we walk away from the sinner's world when sin is so ever before us? It's, it's omnipresent, it seems. And how could we actually live out a principle that says, walk away from the sinner's world? How do you do that? It's, it's almost as though Paul anticipated that very question in 1 Corinthians 5 when he said, you Corinthians, you're not dealing with the man who's involved in sexual immorality. He's right in your church. He's right in your fellowship. And, and you ought to have been dealing with him, but you have not. And he says, you ought to put away this wicked man from among yourselves. And then he says, parenthetically, but at least anticipating the very thing we're talking about here, I did not say that you are not supposed to interact with the world. You are supposed to interact with the world. How can you not interact with the world? Because we're all in this world. We're all living here. And there are sinners all around us. So how can it be that we are to walk away from the sinner's world, and yet at the same time we're to be living in this world? It seems as though you can't do both. How can you walk away from something that you're living in? And that's really the question that has occupied us over the last couple of weeks. I tried to anticipate maybe some of you, and some of you in fact did come and say, how can we balance this idea of living in this world and yet not being tainted by this world? How can I practically involve myself in walking away from the sinner and his world and yet still living in a sinful world? It seems as though this particular challenge is most difficult. And do you remember that we have been talking about this at length? And we've been saying quite a number of weeks now, how can we do it? And we said that one of the ways that we ought to be able to work our way through this very, very curious difficulty is to apply a few principles that might help us before we actually hit the text of verses 15 to 19. And you remember one, what one of those principles was? It was this. Christians ought to engage their culture. They ought to be involved with the sinful world. They ought to try to win this sinful world, at, at least to some degree, while not being a part of this world. That was that first little sub-point that we talked about that really challenges us not to remove ourselves so completely from the world that we think we're actually obeying this text when we're not really obeying it at all. I don't want to stand up here and criticize various groups of people, judging their hearts or their motives about how to to answer this particular question. But one of the things that I would dare say on the balance of Holy Scripture is that you can't be in a nunnery, you can't be in a convent, you can't be in a, in a monk place, you can't be somewhere there trying to obey this command and still yet follow the other dictates of the Word of God. You can't do it. You can't so remove yourself 
from the world and try to be so separate from it, and yet at the same time trying to win people out of the world. It's impossible. You can't do it. Jesus did not leave us in this place, this wicked place, for the purpose of so separating ourselves that we have utterly no impact on this decadent culture. There is a balance here, somewhere, somehow, and we must find it. And that first principle tells us that we are all to be about the process of engaging the culture, at least to some degree, so that we might, like Paul says, by all means, by preaching the gospel, by all means, in order that some might be saved, to win people to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, by having said that, I haven't really answered the question about how you do it. But at least in the first place, we all ought to agree that separating ourselves physically from the world is of little help. Because by separating yourselves physically, by going in a monastery somewhere, by, by going in a place where only believers are located, is no way to penetrate your culture for a saving relationship to Jesus Christ that we've enjoyed and that we want them to enjoy. It's more than that. It has to be something outside of that. And sure, there's a motivation sometimes for all of us to say, the world is getting worse and worse, and the Bible says that. Paul tells Timothy that in the latter days, evil times will come, evil epics, evil seasons. In the end, men will grow from worse to worse. Yes, that's true, and there's a tendency for all of us to say to ourselves, how can we in this culture ever hope to be used as an instrument of God's grace when the culture seems to be going from bad to worse in so quick a measure? How can we do it? And there's certainly a temptation to be able to say at one point, it can't be done. I must do everything I can to save myself, my family, from this wicked world. And there's this subtle temptation to move yourself away from the culture. And it may even be that some people say, I have to move myself so far away that I can't be influenced by anybody who's not a Christian. It seems to me that that's a wrong approach. Christians, at least to some degree, ought to be engaging the culture. But secondly, that second sub-point that we dealt with last time was this. Christians, even with their attempt to engage the culture, ought not to themselves, either wittingly or unwittingly, be participating in the world's evil deeds. In other words, yes, all of us as Christians are commanded to be salt and light. And we looked at a number of those passages, and all of those passages tell us, command us, they adjure us, they, they promote within us the idea that you cannot separate yourself so completely and so totally that you're only with Christians all of the time, everywhere, in every place. We're commanded to go right into that culture and to be salt and light within that culture and yet at the same time not be ourselves participating in the evil deeds of the culture. And now, if you're like me, I, and I know that I have a tendency to do this, am frustrating all of us. Because it's still not the answer to the question. 
I mean, it's one thing to say, Christians, you got to go out there and you got to be engaged in the culture and you got to be working with people and you're going to be living among them in the sense of your job or maybe even your home with an unsaved spouse or unsaved children or you're going to be with uh, extended family or you're going to have other people in your life and you're telling me I have to engage those people in conversations and I have to live my life in front of them. How can I not be so unduly influenced by them? Well, the Bible says you can. The Bible says you can be a holy person without be, becoming so unholy in your own behavior. I mean, if the Bible gives us a command to be holy as God is holy, then there must be at least some way for that to happen while not becoming more unholy than holy when we engage this culture. And the key, of course, is to try to tread the fine line between engaging the culture and not being wittingly, that is knowingly, or unwittingly, that is naively, or, or not understanding fully what you're doing, participating in the world's evil deeds while at the same time trying to win them. And you say, well, wherever that balance is, I haven't found it. Well, believe me, I'm searching for it as well. I'm looking for that balance. I I'm trying to find out some of the keys to engaging this culture without, without being participants in that evil culture itself. But I believe it's possible because God's Word tells us. And that is where we come to this morning. There is a way not to do it. And I believe that in addition to some of the other passages that have occupied our minds, verses 15 to 19 of Proverbs chapter 1 help us greatly. How does it help us? First, Solomon reiterates the personal nature of his concern about his son when he repeats to whom he is speaking. Notice verse 15, my son. This is now the third time that he said that. Verse 8, hear my son. Verse 10, my son. Verse 15, my son. You sort of have the impression that he's trying to make it really personal here. That he's really trying to engage his son in a discussion, in a teaching time. And he has directed his words to his son because he wants to make sure that there is no mistaking what he's after. And what is it that he commands? Notice. Do not walk in the way with them. Who's the them? Sinners. Notice verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you. We're talking about the subject of a son not being enticed by sinners. That's the whole context here. My son, do not walk in the way with them, these sinners that I've been referring to. Keep your feet from their path. And this is the very principle we've been addressing, especially with regard to this second sub-point of Christians, yes, engaging the culture, but not be so engaging the culture that all of a sudden I'm seeing myself slipping into the very patterns of sin that I'm trying to tell my culture to move away from. And it is so subtle. And that's why Solomon has to say to his son three times in a very small context, my son, listen to me. My son, if they say something, don't listen. My son, don't walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. 
If you're going to engage your culture, and you must, you cannot become caught up in the world's evil in the process. That's that second point. That's the idea that says, I must engage my culture. I agree, preacher, with you on that. But how can I tread the fine line of engaging my culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ while not compromising myself? Well, I believe the key, and I heard it a couple of weeks ago in a care group, and I thought it was really well said. I don't necessarily like the idea of living in the world, but not being of the world. Because, again, we're all living in and amongst sinners. But I like what someone said, and I wrote it down. You must live among the world, but rise above the world. I like that. That's maybe a a better way of trying to come to grips with this delicate balance. You must live in the world. If you're alive, if you're breathing, you're in the world. But you must rise above it. It's pettiness, it's sin, it's evil, it's decadence. Somehow you have to live in and around the sin of this world, and yet you have to have a mindset that because I want to penetrate this gospel of Jesus Christ in and among the people that I'm living in and around, I still yet in my own personal life have to rise above the sin that I see around me. And sometimes it's seeing sin all around you. You cannot help but be living among those who are worldly, but you must live transcendently above the world's allurements. We must attempt to win them, but yet be distinct from them. There is no virtue in attempting to redeem the culture while at the same time living like the culture. And you and I have probably heard on a number of occasions people saying, why should I live like Christians live today? Because it seems as though they don't live any differently than I do. There was a book subtitle a number of years ago, Why the Church Looks Like the World. Why it seems as though there's no distinguishable difference between the church and the world. You see, it cuts the very motivation from people, even though they may be using it as a sinful reason to continue to be involved in their evil. Nevertheless, they still say, and it might be a rightly said thing, that they are saying, why should I come to Jesus Christ when I look at your life and it doesn't seem as though there's any difference between you and me? I'm involved in this sin, you're involved in that sin. I'm doing this, you're doing this. You see, it's the idea of us coming back to that person and saying, I want to be with you. I want to have a relationship with you, but I'm going to rise above the sinfulness of your life, and I will not be named as one who has not been able to see the pattern of sin broken. The pattern of sin is broken in my life. Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. I want you to know that. That's why I have a relationship with you. And I want you to know that even though I'm around you, I want to live transcendently. I want to live as though I am a person pursuing a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm here in your life. And that is possible. And part of the way to arm ourselves against that is to listen to passages like these. But it's not just to hear this passage and then say to yourself, well, I'm supposed to retreat from the world. I mean, Solomon tells his son, don't go with them, don't walk in the way with them, keep your feet from their path. And it makes it sound as though we're to be so different, so ostracized from the world that we don't always see the balance in some of these other passages of the Word of God that says, engage your culture, be salt and light, reach out, evangelize. 
And even when I talk about this passage this morning, I don't want you to be caught up in the idea that I'm saying move away from your culture by not being named with the sinners and their path. This is still an opportunity for us to be taught here, but it's within the context of knowing that we are still living in and around these people. Now, having said that, I want you to notice some very, very key elements of this text. He says, My son, don't walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. Verse 16, Why should I keep from them? Why should I keep my feet from their path? He says, verse 16, For their feet run to evil and they shed blood. They hasten to do it. They want to be involved in evil. They want to be involved in sinfulness. They want to be those who are always and forever thinking of themselves and not anyone else. And that's the kind of mindset that should be removed from the Christian. You see, we're other-centered. We're moving away from just the pursuit of our own pleasure. We're not to be those characterized by a fulfillment of our own desires. That particular pattern has been broken in our life, and that breach has occurred when we were anew, when we were regenerated, when Jesus Christ came to us and He granted us faith and repentance, and He removed from us for the very first time the self-centeredness of our life. Not totally, not completely, but at least to some degree, so that then we could begin to do battle by the Holy Spirit's power so that when someone came to us and enticed us to do something like this, for the first time in our life we could say, no, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be involved in that. And it may be that for some initial time in our new Christian life, we might have said no to these things in such a way that we might have been characterized as people who went so away from our culture that we were not going to be influenced by it, and there might have been occasions when we could have been rightly accused of people who were not aggressively attempting to evangelize. Why? Well, it's understandable. Look, I, I've just come from that world. I've just come from that sphere. I've just come from that place, and I don't want to be involved in that at all. I want to run as far as I can in the other direction. And this may even be the sense here that Solomon is telling his son. It may even be that Solomon is saying, look, I have been there. I know the enticements that are involved, and my son, I'm telling you, don't walk with them. Don't let your feet go on their path. Why? For their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. But of course, those sons might say, as so many of our sons might invariably say to that, Dad, how dumb do you think I am? Do you think I'll just start running with the guys who are running to evil and hastening to shed blood? I'm smarter than that. If I saw my non-Christian friends being involved in that kind of activity, I would immediately run from such things. Oh, really? Are we that discerning? Are we that ready? Is a son, whether he's a young son or an older son, is he, is he that ready to be able to have that immediate response? Apparently not according to Solomon, because notice verse 17. He says, Indeed... Right after having said, don't walk in the way with them, keep your feet from their path, their feet run to evil, they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless 
to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, this is a very difficult verse in the Hebrew text to translate and interpret. And obviously, the translators of the New American Standard Bible, which is the Bible that I'm using here in the pulpit, believe that it should be translated with the idea like this. Any bird who sees a trap being set for him is not going to fall for it. And that sounds exactly like this is being translated by the translators of the NASB. And it may be like the NIV. I checked that one. It may sound as though it's actually going against the context of this passage. And I think in some ways these translations are doing that. It really doesn't fit the context, and it certainly, in my judgment, doesn't fit the context of the next two verses. So what does it mean? I think it should probably mean something like this. Dwayne Garrett, who was one of the uh, helpful and able commentaries on this particular passage, says, Verse 17 is confusing as translated in the NIV and most versions. Even if one is willing to admit that a bird is intelligent enough to recognize the purpose of a trap when he sees it, which is doubtful, the proverb has no point in context. In addition, the Hebrew cannot sustain the translation, spread a net. The line is best rendered in the eyes of a bird that is strewn with grain, there is no reason. In other words, the bird does not see any connection between the net and what is scattered on it. He just sees food that is free for the taking. In other words, there's this net. And this net has been drawn tightly on all sides so that as soon as the bird comes in, the net could be drawn together and he's trapped. And the idea of the verse is really the opposite of the way you might read it. It's not the idea that there's this very intelligent bird up in the sky and he's looking down upon this bait and there's this spreaded net out and he knows he's going to be caught if he goes down there and tries to take that, that grain. And he's saying to himself, bird... I shall not do this, because if I do this, then I will surely be caught. And so he just flies away to another location where there is grain or other food without a net involved. Now, obviously, that is not the point of that text, but you might read that text in that way. It's actually, in my judgment, saying the opposite thing. It's saying that there is a baited net, yes, and it is strewn about with grain, and this net is so tightly coiled that at the very moment that a dumb bird in the sky who has no intelligence but only works off instinct only sees the bait in the middle. That's it. They're focused on one thing, and that is grabbing what they want. And when they go down to that area, they don't know that there's a net around it. They don't know that there's any danger. They don't know that there's any entrapment. And when they go for the gusto, they don't realize that the net is a danger. It is an entrapment. And as soon as they take the, bet, the bait, the net is taken and taught, and it catches them. That's the point. Garrett says, In the process he is trapped and killed. In the same way, the gang cannot see the connection between their acts of robbery and the fate that entraps them. Unquote. He's right. 
It's really the idea that you are, you are having such a tunnel vision about what you want. You're so self-centered. You want exactly the, the booty, the money, the food, whatever it may be, and you don't see the danger signs. You don't see this net that has been so lavishly set up around this great bait, and as soon as your eyes hit the bait, you don't see anything else. And when you grab that bait, when you have it in your mouth, when you have it in your hand, when you're pursuing it with all your might, then and only then you look around and you realize, I'm in a cage. I'm trapped. And now, verse 18 makes a lot better contextual sense. But they, the evildoers, lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. You see it? See, that's... That's the context. The context is there are, there are these evildoers, these sinners, and all that they can think about is their sin. All that they can think about is their life, their money, their power. And their feet run to do evil, and they hasten to shed blood, and they can't think of anything else, and they're just like tunnel vision going down the path, and it's just like a bird who only sees that net or, excuse me, only sees that bait within the net, and in the sight of that bird, he lunges for it, he goes for it. He doesn't realize that he's now been trapped. And it's like those sinners, they lie and wait for their own blood, and they don't realize they've ambushed themselves. I couldn't help but think, when I was reading this, of the Texas Seven. You remember these seven men who broke out of the Texas prison? and they went on a wild rampage. And to hear some of that testimony given by Rivas, the, the head of this mob, this angry, killing mob, and how they ambushed that policeman there in the parking lot. And when you heard that testimony, all that I could think of in my mind was all that they could see was escape, 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 money, power. You remember they left a the little note? And they said, you haven't seen anything yet. You remember that? And they grabbed their guns and they grabbed their ammo and they grabbed all of their resources and then they stole for money and they stole vehicles and they killed anybody in their path. They had tunnel vision. And all the while, they didn't realize while they were looking for escape, they were further trapping themselves. It's just a matter of time. They were going to be caught, trapped, they were, they were lying in wait for their own blood. They were ambushing their own lives. By the way, this is, this is reiterated in Proverbs. Look at Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs 22. This is, this is what we are told about these kinds of men and what our response should be. Proverbs 22 verse 24. Proverbs 22, 24, do not associate with a man given to anger. Or do not go or associate with a hot-tempered man, or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. This is, a, this is an application from Proverbs 1 about a about a person who might say of, of himself, look, I, I want to go out into our world, I, I want to 
associate with people. Pastor, you've told me to engage the culture and I'm going out there. But the difference is that you are not to participate in the evil deeds. And clearly this person has begun to learn the man's angry ways. And ultimately all he found was not this person repenting of their own sins and saying, I'm a hot-tempered man. That's not what Jesus Christ is all about. You find yourself being a hot-tempered man, learning his ways, and you find a snare for yourself. Proverbs 24, verse 1. Do not be envious, jealous of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their minds devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. Now I notice that, that even though I have have set up this scenario, even verse 19, so are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. And just like this uh, George Rivas, the, the one who stood on that, that witness stand and, and admitted that he had done these things and said, I am going actually because you've sentenced me to death into life where I'll have real freedom when I die. That's what he said. He doesn't realize that his life is, is taken away. He's trying to gain by violence, and now he tries to possess his life fully, and his life will be taken away from him so completely. And I know that when I say that, and I know that when this passage is here, it might again be a tendency for us to say, well, then how can you do it? How can you engage this culture? And that's when Christians begin to disagree. That's when Christians begin to say, well, here's, here's my approach to that. Here's how I engage the culture, and I'm not going to be a participant in the evil deeds, but, but I'm going to try to do it this way. And then another set of Christians will say, no, we don't think that's the best way. This is the best way. Here's the best approach. Here's a, a way that you can, can be engaging the culture and yet not be a participant in its evil ways. And there's disagreement there. And not all of us are going to find a precise biblical path I might give an example like this. It'd be like someone who, who starts drinking alcohol to fit in with a particular crowd. Maybe it starts out as uh, beer or wine or something like that, and, it, and it's really just a drinking of a cup of wine or, or a can of beer just, just to be able to show people that Christians aren't simply involved in, in following a list of do's and don'ts. Now, immediately... When I give that as an example, some might say, well, then that's the first mistake they made. But is it? Does the Bible say that? I'm not advocating drinking, but I'm saying we have to be careful as Christians that we don't automatically say that those things are morally wrong. Because you know what? The Bible, it doesn't really say that drinking any alcoholic beverages whatsoever is automatically right or automatically wrong. It doesn't say that. There's nothing in the Word of God that says that drinking a can of beer or a glass of wine is automatically right or wrong. I told you just about a month ago of my experience when I was studying in Belgium of going to a restaurant midweek with all of the students, about 35 of us, and I was offered a glass of wine to drink. And I said no, and I realized everybody around me to a man was drinking a glass of wine. Now, if I were in a context where I was with non-Christians and I was there and someone offered me a glass of wine, is it a sin to take it? 
Is it a sin to be involved with that? The Bible doesn't say that. Jesus drank wine. He turned the water into wine in the wedding at Cana, Galilee. Where, where do you draw the line? Where, where do you have this balance that you want to, to have? How can you engage this culture? If you were to go out with some guys or maybe watch Monday Night Football or something like that and someone handed you a beer, is it automatically wrong for you to take that? Well, that's, that's a gray area. The Bible doesn't say explicitly. Now, the Bible does say that strong drink is a problem. It does say that. It does say that strong drink... Now, here's the conundrum. What's a strong drink? Well, what is that? Well, it meant something in biblical times. certainly means, means something today. And the Bible most assuredly condemns drunkenness. And there are a lot of people who would say, well, I don't want to be a drunken person. And I don't want to be involved in strong drink, whatever it is, and however it can be determined. And so I'll draw the line at no drinking whatsoever, even if it's at the cost of trying to influence someone to Jesus Christ, trying to, trying to be involved. And it might be rightly said that someone says, look, I don't have to drink to try to influence someone to a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's certainly true. But it's not necessarily morally wrong for someone who says, I'm going to drink a beer every now and then. I'm going to drink a glass of wine every now and then. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. And if they do that in their own heart for the purpose of reaching out to other people and showing them that Christianity is not just a list of do's and don'ts, how am I to judge that? How am I to say that that's automatically wrong? And in fact, if I do, I better come up with some clear biblical passages that say this is a wrong act for a Christian to partake in. How do I respond to these things? How, how do I reach this arena? Well, this is the third and final sub-point in how to engage this culture, and I want to give it to you very quickly, and it's very easy in one sense, and it is this. Christians must not judge other Christians' motives on matters of cultural engagement. Christians must not judge other Christians' motives on matters of cultural engagement, especially in those areas which are not explicitly stated in Scripture as either absolutely right or absolutely wrong. Now, I want you to go in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, because this is really the preeminent text in the New Testament that speaks of this. And I'm only going to spend a few moments briefly talking about this, but this is great in its importance. Because what I find so often within the realm of Christianity is two Christians very much attempting to engage their culture, and one Christian does it one way, and another Christian does it another way, and often what happens is you have two Christians fighting with each other rather than both of them agreeing that there could be two different paths in order to engage the culture. And they end up canceling each other out because they're worried about what the other Christians are doing and not the idea of how can I do it in a way that's right for me as opposed to a way that's right for someone else. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. And then he says this to the Corinthians, and obviously there were some great challenges with his interaction with the Corinthians. They were often very, very unkind to Paul. 
And certainly those within the Corinthian church may have even been, have been trying to unseat him in his apostolic ministry. You can tell that by 2 Corinthians. And so in verse 3 of chapter 4, he says, But to me it is a very, very small thing that I be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. In other words, Paul is saying, look, Corinthians, I know that you've criticized me. I know that you've judged my motives. I know that you say that I'm impure. It may have even been, folks, that some of them have been saying about Paul, he's in it for the money. He's in it for sexual favors. He's in it for a lot of reasons, but he's not in it for the Lord. And he says, it's a small thing to me that I'm examined by you or by any other human individual, human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. In other words, I'm not presently conscious of anything against myself. If I am, it would come to me. If it doesn't, I believe my motives are pure. Yet I am not by this acquitted. In other words, I'm not 100% pure in my assessment of myself, and ultimately the one who examines me is the Lord. Verse 5, here's the command. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. Translation, therefore, do not go on saying that you know what is in the heart of another individual before the time. And what is the time? It's the time of the Lord's return. Why? Because he says further in verse 5, But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul says, I, 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 don't, even, I don't even wait to examine myself, ultimately and finally, the one who examines me is the Lord, and He'll do that when He comes. And until He comes, don't try to uncover the hidden things in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Don't go on passing judgment. I can't say to another Christian, if they're sitting in a restaurant in Little Rock somewhere, and they go to the Bible church of Little Rock or some other church, and I know them, and they're drinking a glass of wine, I can't judge them. They might even have the motive of doing so, not for their own pleasure, but for the opportunity to sit down with someone, and they don't want these list of issues. They want to tell someone about a personal relationship with Christ, and they don't want the issue of drinking a glass of alcohol to get in the way. I can't judge them. I can't say they're wrong. They're wrong to do that because the Bible doesn't say that. Now, if the Bible says it, it's wrong. If the Bible says it's okay, then it's okay. The Bible nowhere commands that we drink alcohol. The Bible nowhere com condemns that if we drink alcohol in a certain way. Do I drink alcohol? No. No. Why? Number one, I think it tastes terrible, which might imply that I've drank it before. And in my non-Christian days, I did. And you know what? I don't want to do it now because it means nothing to me. It means nothing to me. In fact, the whole issue of Christians drinking is an issue, but it's certainly not the issue. And you want to keep the main things the main things. And you want to keep the lesser issues the lesser issues. 
And you know, one reason I don't want to do it is because of some other passages that we'll talk about next week, and that is I don't want to ensure that anybody is struggling over what I do. Because if you're struggling over what I do, then you might take the same act that I might be involved with, and you might take it to another level, and then it becomes a problem for you. And I don't want to do that. I want to be able to be the kind of person who is doing things in the gray areas that don't seem to be a problem with anybody at any time. You say, well, that's just you catering to other people. That's exactly right. I'm trying to cater to both Christians and non-Christians alike. So what would I do in that situation? I would refuse the idea of a glass of wine or a bottle of beer. I would say no to that. But I would also hasten to tell those people that that's not an issue for me as a Christian. That's not an issue for me. I don't say you're a Christian if you stay away from it, and I don't say you're a Christian if you drink it. And, and you could plug in any example there if you want. Cigarettes. Now, I think cigarettes will kill you. I think if you light up a piece of paper rolled up with some tobacco inside it and smoke it for the bulk of your life, that's really not a smart thing to do. If you want to set your lip on fire, go ahead. If you want to do something like that, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to say that you're morally unfit to be a Christian, and I'm certainly not going to say that if you stop smoking that you're a more eminent Christian. What I'm going to say is that if you want to be a person who is engaging the culture for Jesus Christ, you better look at all of these gray areas, and you better be convinced in your own mind what you ought to do and what you ought not to do. And you know what? It's ultimately your issue, not mine. It's your issue, not mine. My issue, that's my issue. Your issue, that's your issue. Work it out in your own heart. We're going to talk about this next week. In fact, we've got to close, but we're going to talk about it next week. And when we do, we're going to go some passages in Romans 14, Romans 15, some other places, 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to talk more about this. This is very, very important. Uh, our, our reputation is, is looking to people as though this is the stuff that we center our lives upon, don't we? They, they, they look at us and say, are, are you one of those that does this? Or are you one of those that does that? Are you involved in this? Are you involved in that? And our response is, I love Jesus Christ so much that my life doesn't revolve around stuff that Scripture doesn't address. My life revolves around stuff that Scripture does address. I, I have a hard enough tr time trying to obey the stuff Scripture does say than the stuff Scripture doesn't say, right? We're going to talk about that next time. Let's pray. Father, I know that in so many ways there are people who struggle with these areas. They look at these gray areas and say, how can I gain a handle on this? Or well, why does Christian so-and-so do this? Why does Miss so-and-so do that and Mr. so-and-so do that? I, I want to help them, Lord. And I know that there are struggles in these areas for Christians. And I want to be able to come to my own place, my own opinion, my own judgment as to what these gray areas mean. And I pray that you would help us through this so that we would not judge how one Christian attempts to live his life before a watching world and how another one does. And I pray that you'd help us. Lord, help us. Help us look at these passages. Thank you for what Paul says. I, I, in one sense, I don't even examine myself. The one who examines me is the Lord, so, so don't go on judging each other. Only the Lord knows the motives of men's hearts. Lord, teach us that. Melt that to our hearts so that we will be Christians interacting with other Christians. And even if they're different from what we're doing, we can rejoice 
that they're still attempting to engage their culture their way. May you bless us. In Christ's name. Amen.